Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hershey. On today's episode, Sean and I talk to vocalist and voice instructor Lee Hoffman about discovering her calling, her approach to teaching, and the benefits of discovering communism at a young age. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for doing this. If we could just start with how'd you get into music? And- yeah, uh, my family on uh, both my mother's and my father's sides, going back generations. Um, I don't know of anyone who has pursued it professionally before me. I, I, did, I really don't know of anybody who's done that, but I know that on my dad's side of the family, the emphasis has been toward classical and more academic kind of uh, ways of thinking. And then on my mom's side, it's the hoot nanny, <laughs> you know, improvise, harmonize, uh, teach yourself by ear, you know, that kind of side. And it's been really interesting to try to knit those because I've inherited both of those sides almost equally. And uh, so my mom and dad... Um, took voice lessons, and I remember hearing them when I was very young. Uh, They took lessons from the lady across the street from us. Just so happened, there she was. And with her windows open, I could hear them. And then I I took piano lessons at the age of five and continued with my piano stuff, and I'm so grateful for the piano. My goodness. And then was really just singing with my family for fun until high school when I started with the choir uh, singing and really discovered that that suddenly gave me a way to to feel confident because before that I really truly felt that I was I didn't belong and I, I I was one of those outcast people you know kind of like that people spit on I mean <laughs> isn't that the story of every choir kid ever I'm so just different but I found my place. <laughs> so my, uh, I took started taking voice lessons when I was 16, and I realized, I remember, I was driving. It was like I was a new driver, and I pulled up to an intersection at a stoplight after a voice lesson, and I was thinking to myself, I want to do this, you know? And I had my, at that time, newly purchased anthology of Schubert leader that I'd, I'd come directly from her house having just sung Die Post <laughs> or Haydn Roslein I'm not sure which one and um, it just you know it was kind of galvanizing so then I went to San Jose State for as a voice major and just for two years though and finished my bachelor's of music and voice performance at Sac State I don't know how much more you want me to go I, I could go on and on I couldn't because I'm kind of older you are 25, and you look not a day over it. Such a flatterer you are, Sean. Sorry, Sean, you're breaking up. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me, as we get this started, we've been talking to a lot of um, a lot of folks in music, particularly in, in classical. And, and it's interesting, I'm finding a lot of people, at least that we've talked to, have had galvanizing moments like that. Like, there's, there's this place they can point to specifically where it was like, yes, that's... That's what I want to do. And I don't know that that is true across other creative outlets. I don't know. I mean, as, as a photographer, um, I'm, I'm fascinated to know what your process has been like. 
yeah, I mean, I have always been kind of jealous of that moment. It, it, sure. And I'm, I'm sure that it has existed, but I don't, I don't think of it that way for a lot of people in that I know in visual arts that I haven't run into a whole lot of people who have that moment huh. where, where it was so clear. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think there's something um, particularly distinct about experiencing real pain of, of, of not being accepted and not feeling at ease at all in the world of, of the, the school, you know, and, and going home, I'm, I'm just kind of one with the wallpaper. I mean, I, you know, it was a lively family and everything. It's just that I, it, there wasn't a need for me to distinguish myself in my family because I just was there. Um, like wallpaper, but at school, I really was out of sorts. And then that ding feeling of, I'm good at this. I feel it is in line with, with myself, even though at that point I, I hadn't even really started knowing who, who this is. Um, but there's just something that, that does go click, click and, it just gave me something to grab onto as a lifeline. And I think as musicians, it's such a visceral art. And I feel like that somehow it, it, it like it ties itself to your psyche and your being. And then, and we're also storytellers. So we always love having a good story of like, this is when I discovered my art. We can't help ourselves. <laughs> well, and then for you as a violinist first, was violin first Yes. Not another instrument before that? Just violin. Violin. Um, you know, the voice is intrinsically human. And, you know, your sense of self and the violin, uh, where you begin and the violin ends and vice versa, what's that been like? Um, it's been so long a part of me that it essentially becomes a part of me. But I do remember that moment exactly. I was playing Bach. I was eight. And like something about it just gave me chills. And I was like, oh, I like this. Okay, I can do this. I have that moment. <laughs> so you enroll at, at San Jose for voice. Did you have a direction you wanted to take that? Or was it just like, this is what I enjoy doing. I want to go to school for it. And I'll kind of figure out a career path after that. I was pretty clueless um, and didn't know it. I was doing pretty well considering uh, my upbringing. Um, I, I have wonderful parents who are both deceased now, but I have wonderful parents, and they raised us uh, with very narrow views of the world and ourselves, uh, based in fundamentalist Christianity. And um, I was the firstborn, and I was kind of expected to be excellent in, in this narrowly defined way. As, a, as just a, a Christian. And so the way I see these, these 18 to 22-year-olds now, knowing so much about the field they're entering, they're, they know what questions to ask, they know all this stuff that I didn't have the kind of cognitive structure in place to even realize that that was possible to think like that. So really what I was most focused on was my emotional experience 
and how much I missed my family, and specifically my best friend at the time, um, a woman who I was in love with and, and wasn't out. And, you know, I just mentioned fundamentalist Christianity. Right. And I'm mentioning this. Those two are like that when you're not, you have no idea how to reconcile that. So it was fun. But uh, the, the hugely important part of being at San Jose State was Charlene Archibald. Mm, I know. Choral conductor. Uh, even though I was there for voice performance, the main meat of my experience at San Jose State for those two years was being in choir, being in the main choir, and then also in the choral ears, which was, uh, they had, there were graduate students, and here I was a freshman. It, it was really good for me to be exposed to that, even though I had no idea how to, how to navigate that. Socially, professionally, you know. Right. I, I mean, I can only imagine uh, on top of stepping into uh, very literally like stepping into the world for what sounds like the first time yeah. out, out of your family. Not only are you doing that, but in a, in a city that is very different than Sacramento. And Yeah. So I, I was just there in San Jose for two years and I, I was really just too homesick, too not equipped to manage the emotional uh, stress. I, I was in distress emotionally. And uh, so I came back to Sacramento and I finished up at Sac State. Yeah. And that's just one of the most difficult things about art is that your whole soul and your whole being has to be in it. And you have to nurture that in just such a special way. You can't kind of ignore your feelings or you could try to, but as an artist, I don't feel like you're going to succeed in discovering yourself as an artist without nurturing all that stuff well that's the that's really the the mode of amplifying so like you won't be heard or seen as vividly and as authentically if you don't know you know and it's a process well and as you both were talking to earlier this is especially important when your practice is so reliant on introspection or, or pulling from one's own person and experience, right? If you, if you are telling your own stories, you have to be connected to those stories. Where in photography, I spend a lot of time I'd telling my own stories, but I can always hide behind other people, which is one thing that really draws me to it, just matching my own sort of personality. And, and one reason why I felt like podcasting was a, a good road to go down, because I like telling other people's stories with them. So you finish up undergrad. Did you go directly into working in music after that? What was that process like? Well, by the time I was entering my final year at Sac State, I did two at San Jose State and three at Sac State. I just needed that extra time in the oven, so to speak. And I did two senior recitals. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I did a junior recital and I did a senior recital and I did an elective, an elective senior recital. But in that final year, something went snap. <laughs> And I came out. Only I didn't come out to anyone but myself. I mean, I, I had known since I was four. Wow. I feel the way I do. Um, so in terms of like, you know, the fundamentalist Christianity, the view that my parents had of me as a person, I have to be me. I have to be me. So I left after graduating from Sac State in 85. Um, I went to St. Louis. And with the intention of starting a graduate program 
in voice performance. But that huge uh, shift within myself, there was no way uh, I could continue that. So I, I started this quarter at uh, Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville. It was actually across the Mississippi from St. Louis. And I just, I could not finish. I could not continue that quarter. And I just, I withdrew. And I spent the next three years just figuring out how to be a person and starting to develop cognitive structure. <laughs> One of my friends that I made at that time was really, really, really got me thinking. Um, she had been a Spanish translator for um, the Sandinistas down in Nicaragua, and she uh, considered herself a communist, and she had been arrested for spray painting impeach Reagan on a bridge in Minneapolis. I mean, she was, you know, pretty heroic, and she was educating me. Not, she wasn't trying to make me into a um, anything. She was just educating me about, you know, it, it's the United States. I was raised to think that the United States was always the good guy. You know, it's the United States and everyone else. Similarly to, it's the Christians and everyone else. And it's our kind of Christianity and everyone else. You know, that kind of thing. But this expansion and this holding more than one viewpoint, sometimes viewpoints that cancel each other out, holding them both in mind at the same time, and being able to, to, there's still room around that. There's not this war between them. There's not a need to settle or choose. It's what is. And it's a wholeness of thinking and a wholeness of, of being. Oh, the world is hard enough without having to uh, dice it up like that. Um, it's much more, um, it's a better use of energy, I think, to perceive the world as as somehow okay as it is. <laughs> <laughs> certainly other people are fine as they are. Yeah. Um, and not having to put them into certain shapes to right. them be okay. How So how old were you when you were having this sort of rebirth, like a cognitive yeah. restructuring? Yeah. Let's see, that was 87 that I met her. Uh, I was 25. Yeah, I was 25. Right, where you are, Sean. Isn't that amazing? And you've already been thinking for, for your whole life. You had a head start on me. Trying. Well, it's, I mean, it's a it's a very different world. I, I think about this a lot. I have a brother who's only two years younger than I am. And even in that span of time, and we're very different people, but even in that span of time, he grew up hooked into different parts of the internet than I did and, and like having an entirely different experience than than I did. And so that difference and then jump to Sean and then jump five years after that to people who are reaching adulthood now. Um, it's really amazing because I feel like you can have, you can get started thinking about those things earlier, if only because it's easier to reach voices that maybe for you, you had to meet in person. We have the internet now. We can see everybody and, and talk to anybody. Yeah. I think yeah. you can meet quite a few communists on the internet, so. <laughs> I certainly did. Yeah. Shape my worldview coming up. I, I read the Communist Manifesto way too early. To <laughs> I mean, how um, dare we think? I know, right? Gosh, watch out for you. And what a what a wild idea to to 
have in your foundation, maybe everybody should own everything, you know, wherever you end up, you know, landing on that, it, it changes how, how the whole world, how you think the whole world should be yeah. structured, or at least how you approach it. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe making a little bit of a jump, um, how did you end up transitioning into teaching then? Yeah. Um, while I was taking voice lessons in my first couple years of voice lessons, I, I immediately started, you know, kind of sharing with people in the the choir that I was in uh, through the church I attended at the time. I was in the youth choir and there was just something, uh, I have teachers on both sides of my family. Um, so it's in me to, to do that, the capacity to, to see connections between things and find, you know, be able to observe someone and connect my knowledge with what I'm observing. And then, you know, so that started then. It wasn't a formal kind of teaching, but it certainly was rooting. It, it was where my teaching took root. And then when I was in St. Louis, um, I did some teaching in a private studio uh, before I actually did then get back on track and pursuing a master's degree. Um, and it was because I had been doing some teaching voice in this private studio in St. Louis that I went over to Webster University and met with the head of the voice program there. And my intention was solely to find out if there was a class in pedagogy that I could take just to know more uh, about what I was doing. Right. I, I just thought maybe I could, kind of like on a menu, could I have an a la carte uh, <laughs> pedagogy class? Yeah. <laughs> so she said, well, let me hear you sing. <laughs> and so I didn't have anything with me. So she you know, found a Mozart something or other, and I sang. And, oh, she says, and um, the next thing I know, I walked out of there with an assistantship. <laughs> I, I walked out of there with... An assistantship, which meant that when I started uh, the master's degree in voice performance at Webster University in the fall of 88, I was teaching the same kinds of students that the adjuncts were teaching. Uh, These were um, theater majors and some um, basic music majors that were not performance uh, track. And it was a wonderful way for me to kind of move into more formal instruction and having her mentorship along the way. I'd, I'd had, I, I had done some teaching when I was at Sac State, just some private teaching, um, but I didn't have any mentorship at all. So when I finally had this, this person who was my supervisor and, and uh, my lessons with her were mentoring uh, in and of themselves... Um, it, it was, I, I really think of that as being the start of my formal, uh, teaching and, you know, at the, uni- at the college level. And I took myself very seriously. I took my responsibility for those students' pr- uh, process of development very seriously. I wasn't afraid of it. I know some people, I asked some people, oh, are you interested in teaching voice, you know? They're maybe young singers, but I think that there's something about them that I think, you could do that. So I ask, and they say, oh, I'm afraid of uh, doing something wrong. I, I, uh, and that's good. It's good to be concerned. Um, but 
you know, there's a there are ways to understand what you're doing, and and you won't hurt. You know, fortunately for me, it's not rocket science. If it was, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm pretty intelligent, but I am not that brilliant to to do something that would be so complex. It is complex, but it's it, I can do it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It, it, that speaks to the uh, the level of intuition that that comes with whatever sort of artistic pursuit you take, right? As I, I think I I have long thought, and I had to land on this myself too. But you know, if if you if you practice an art form of some kind, you have most of the tools to teach it. It's just that question of pedagogy, which you were looking for, right? Is is like what do what do I want? to teach and how do I do that but then also I think there's that underlying question of like well what would it mean if I did right that sounds like a great way to learn how to answer that question though instead of a, to assist in that to, to have that mentorship yeah and at the same time I was um, moving through uh, you know moving closer and closer to realizing my vocal potential my artistic potential. I, I, uh, after I was there, I, I went to set to the uh, CCM, the conservatory in Cincinnati. And that's where I, I really, you know, reached further refinement. Um, but I remember at, at Webster University really starting to very meaningfully connect the work that I was doing with the teaching I was doing. Um, my own singing, the skills, the discipline, the, the talent and the skills, making them into a, a very fine instrument, you know? Right. It, it can take you places. Totally. And, and I imagine that that would really, really affect how you, how you think about either one, as if you are developing your thoughts on teaching and your skill at the same time and, and together, it really sounds like, I would imagine that it would, it would change how you think about both of them individually too you're in a process of learning as i don't know for sure what photography is like um in terms of the intense intensive scrutiny Mm -hmm. and then and the little nitpicky detailed stuff the nuance and awareness i have always felt like photographer photography attracts a certain kind of person because those of us that get really serious about it are a particular kind of person because on top of that artistic approach right the the creative end of it and the the like um being inside of your head and 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 that sort of thing you also have to you have to know about chemistry and you have to know about physics and you have to know about how light works and you should have a little bit of engineering so that you know how your the machine that you use works um so it it gets very messy very quickly of of like you have so many irons and so many fires that you have to just keep going yeah yeah and then you find a way to i don't know what the word is amalgamate them <laughs> absolutely yeah um but for me it was never a conscious thing right it was just one day i realized oh i know what i'm doing and i could i could guess what the temperature of the light in the in this room is you know is um but again it's it's not that that instant shift where i can put a, a finger on it it's just like slowly over time suddenly i'm suddenly i'm a photographer um, <laughs> so i'd like to take because we're already kind of on the topic just a, a step back and 
I don't I don't know if it's something you can easily encapsulate, Lee, but do you can you describe what your philosophy and approach to pedagogy is on a on a larger scale and then specifically what is your approach to pedagogy of voice? Well, it really does, as we've already kind of touched on it, it, it has to start within um, my knowledge of myself um, and um, being able to distinguish myself from someone else and understand how I learn things, how I perceive things, how what I assume about facts and principles and concepts, and then people. How I do all that may bear some resemblance or no resemblance to how someone else does those same things. Um, So if I don't know, if I don't have my, my priority on steering the choices I make as a teacher from that, that place of making sure I, I'm clear. Who, who is this that I'm really aiming for? Am I aiming for serving myself and making sure I'm comfortable thinking the way I think? Or am I reaching outside of that comfort into listening, first of all, and taking in what this other person brings to to the wonderful process of learning. And, you know, it, every single person is completely different and also similar. The uniqueness is part of what keeps it fascinating and challenging. And, you know, the more a student wants to learn, is determined and, and follows through on that desire, the more it feeds me as a teacher. So I don't know how, how well I'm, I'm making a statement of my philosophy of pedagogy, but it's, uh, it's definitely a, a, a two-way street. You know, the learners in the room, it, it, when, when I'm a teacher, I'm a learner, and the student is a teacher, and I'm a teacher, and the student is a student, and it's a two-way street. And there are certain pedagogues in the past that, you know, like Lampetti, uh, really we're teaching with a kind of a uh, approach of asking questions and, and receiving answers and steering the process. Because when, when you're a teacher and you ask a student a question, you're not being a, a lawyer, a, an attorney. An attorney's not supposed to ask a question they don't know the answer to. But when you're a teacher and you ask a question, you don't know what the answer's going to be. When you're asking the student what they think, what are they perceiving? So you don't know exactly where it's going to go after that question is asked. And so it's, it's actually quite simple because it's an agreement that I make to remain open to, to the student. I love that. And I can corroborate that. That just just like um, one of the most freeing things about learning with Lee was, first of all, she was able to kind of identify like my id, my just like existence very succinctly in a way I don't think very many other people have kind of figured out about me, which is which is just, you know, it's both kind of terrifying. It's that moment where you feel vulnerable, very naked, but it's also just so freeing to feel like you you are yourself 
and you know with such an intensely personal emotional art to be involved in it just it it just it does wonders for you hey everyone welcome to the break thank you so much for listening i am excited to announce that we have started an instagram page for the show so head on over to Meaning What Pod and give us a follow for weekly updates on episodes. You can also find us on Twitter at that same handle. And we are always available over email at meaningwhatpod at gmail.com. There are links to all of these items and to our newsletter in the show notes. So check them out, tell your friends and family, and show your support. Please also be sure to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. We want to be able to invest in better equipment and more time for the project, but the only way we can do that is with ad money, and the only way we can get that is to dramatically expand the audience. We live in this algorithmic dystopia, as you know, so lots of positive ratings and reviews and shares on social media are the only way we're going to be able to grow the audience and keep this project going. Your support is not only super meaningful, but key to our success. That's it for today. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next Thursday. You are taking a venture into conducting. Can you talk about how it, on many levels, it is similar, but it is it is a different kind of art and a different kind of relationship you have with the musicians that you're around and in my mind, from my experiences, it's a little more, a uh, conductor is a little more of someone you're a little further apart from. They're in charge. It's their rules a little bit. And there's a little more mushy-gushy when it comes to choir and voice and singing because we're all such sensitive creatures compared to orchestra. But can you talk about kind of how that journey has been and if, if conducting is taught your teaching and your teaching is taught your conducting and how that all kind of takes shape. Hmm. I'm still early enough in my process of, of kind of formally pursuing conducting uh, that I, I don't quite yet know how it informs my teaching. And it's also because I'm not actually doing a whole lot of teaching right now. And I really must say, I feel at a terrible loss right now. I don't understand. So there's that. It's like I'm a dog in the pound who doesn't know why people are passing my cage. And so <laughs> so there's that. Um, I'm a resource, and I haven't been checked out of the library recently. You're <laughs> feeling a little underused. <laughs> kind of, yeah, pretty much. So the, the choral conducting is, in a way, a compensation. You know, it's like, okay, well... <laughs> If I'm not going to be in a in a university setting or or a collegiate setting as a, an instructor, well, how about if I just go back and be a student? <laughs> and it's kind of a crisis to do that. It's it's very strange and very weird and and uncomfortable, but it proves that I'm learning. The fact that I'm uncomfortable, so okay. Um, but the uh, refinement. And when I talk about refinement, I'm, ta- I'm not really thinking of lace and uh, the finest fabrics and, and um, high art and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about fire and hardening of steel refinement. The refinement that I've been through as a singer, as a recitalist, that's been my most enjoyable classical kind of singing, recitals. 
um, the, the world that I can access, the world of the song, the world of the tone, um, all of that stuff, applying that to a choral situation. Um, I, I, the University Chorale at Sac State will be an ensemble that I can really apply more of that to. Some of the other choral situations I'm in, are, I'm working with people who are just really just learning how to sing, and they don't really necessarily read music a whole lot. Uh, but working with people who do read music and, and are, you know, uh, they know a lot more about the art, art making, I'm hoping to be able to uh, uh, reach further uh, into bringing my abilities into the now, you know, within conducting. It's, it's tremendous. Uh, a choral music making is glorious and hard and, and it's making love. I mean, it really is. It, it's incredibly amazing, passionate. This is so beautiful. Yeah. And part of what you talked about is that specter of, you know, we're in a global pandemic. Life is kind of shut down for the arts. Yeah. That's why we're making podcasts. Um, and I've seen how you, you everyone has to learn how to adapt. And part of your adaptation has been with your All Voices Choral Project, which I'd love for you to talk more about, and your experiences of rehearsing over Zoom. And so just to talk about the adaptations you've we've all had to make, but especially for you, and a little bit about the special thing that is the All Voices Choral Project. Yeah, back in 2018, um, it was two years into the current administration, and I was at a, I was just beside myself. Um, I needed something to do. I needed a way to to make some kind of difference, and music is usually what I do. And so I decided to start this choir, and what really kicked my butt into gear was hearing Craig Hella Johnson's All of Us, which is one of the choral numbers in uh, Considering Matthew Shepard, his kind of oratorio. If you Have you seen it? Yes, I have. I have not. Oh, my God. It's amazing. So All of Us is this effervescent, it's kind of gospel uh, in terms of, uh, black gospel ish ish. I'm not talking about southern, the Gaither gospel kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, it has real, real soul in it. But it is so energizing. So it inspired me to develop this choir. The idea is that all, everyone's uh, welcome. My caveat is that it that people who are part of it need to also value everyone's voice. So people who don't really value everyone's voice probably wouldn't want to be part of it, but if they ever wanted to and wanted to challenge my model and say, well, if you reject me, then you don't really want everyone. <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Test when people audition. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a conversation, and, and you find the vibe is there, and... And then the voice part of it, not everyone can um, be a successful contributor to a choir with their voice. You know, either they're not in pitch and or their tone just doesn't blend, doesn't lend itself to the overall um, tonality. 
And um, so there, the definition of voice extends beyond singing. Voice is what you do, how you actualize yourself. And so there are ways that people can be part of All Voices Choral Project without singing that are just as impactful for making change. And uh, harmonize the divide is my tagline. All Voices Choral Project, harmonize the divide. And it's not wanting to, you know, take the divide and create a unison. I want to make harmony. And not all harmony is consonant. A lot of times the best harmony is dissonant. So I'm not, I I love dissonance. Harmony does not have to be consonant. Um, So we we take these, these divisions and we make, we amplify the harmony. And our programs, uh, the mission of the programs, uh, to educate, inspire, and mobilize. The first program, we featured about eight different topics, having speakers representing all the different topics. Immigration, um, undocumented students, uh, LGBTQ, uh, we had mental health stuff, we had people experiencing homelessness, racism, uh, justice, social justice. Um, it was powerful, and the program was called Each Other. Each was uh, in small letters, and Other was in all caps. And then the other program that we've done, we, we did Sacramento Pride, uh, but that was kind of more of a, it wasn't really what I would consider a, a full project. We, we sang several pieces for that, but the next project was this last November, it seems like five years ago, but just last November, uh, listened to Herstory, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. And we had speakers. Uh, we had a grandfather of a young woman who is missing come and speak. And we had a legislator, a representative from a legislator's office, come and speak about the task force they're hoping to set up to help agencies communicate and change uh, the laws and get things done. So that's an ongoing... We did that project, but our relationship with that community of the grandfather up in Covalo, Mendocino County, is a very vital living relationship that we will maintain. And we went up there, in fact, for the second anniversary of her miss, her being missing. And we performed part of that project again in February before, before we knew that soon we wouldn't be doing that kind of thing. <laughs> right. So our next project is on the environment, on climate change. And um, so we've been meeting every week. Every week we, uh, the main focus of our meeting on Zoom is to keep our connections with each other because the community aspect of it is fundamental. But we have been making uh, virtual choir recordings. I figured out how to make the little picture-in-picture things uh, with people's videos. And uh, it, it is what it is. I'm not trying to... Uh, sell it or get uh, published or anything. It's just to keep us going. Uh, and it does. It motivates people to to keep learning the songs. We, we brought in a... We, we didn't bring... He, he was in Denver and met with us on Zoom. One of the composers of one of our pieces, Agua Ven, it's a Colombian song, and it's about the drought 
in Colombia back in 2013, 2014. And it's a beautiful song. And he met with us on Zoom and talked about where he wrote it and what it means to him and his experience in that region uh, and everything, how important water is. We're, we're active and um, it's a very important part of what I'm doing that makes me feel like there's a reason to be on the planet. Absolutely. And and what a wonderful sort of way to to deal with the very awful, harsh reality of everything in the U.S. particularly right now. But, but also, you know, what a wonderful thing to have going on as the pandemic unfolded, this, this project that is already built around a sense of building community and, and, and bridging gaps wherever they are and, and however they come up. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that and the people that have stuck in. You know, not everybody who was with us in person has continued in the online environment because it's not for everyone. Um, but we keep everybody informed. And I trust that once we are back able to meet in person, um, we'll reconstitute. Are you scared that because voice is quite literally people um, spitting and singing uh, and, you know, having to be physically close with one another, are you worried that the new normal, which might not be normal, might change the future of choral singing at all, you think? I don't believe that will necessarily happen permanently. I do think it's going to be a longer process than we might be able to conceive of, because safety is the most important thing. At Sac State, uh, they've put a plan in place, because I think they needed to put a plan in place. I don't yet know how realistic it is. But the plan is for the ensembles to be allowed to meet in person, this includes the, cor- the choirs, as well as the bands. They are going to be installing these special filters in the HVAC system um, for anything we do inside. But most of what we're going to be doing is outside. Nine feet apart, wearing masks, for 30 minutes and no more than 30 minutes at a time. The outdoor thing, I can, I can see that working. That being, being that far away, like you say, Sean... You know, being close to someone else is so much a part of what we're used to, at least. And we may need to just develop a better sensitivity to and tunement with the sound and the presence of the person that far away from us. We may be able to rehearse in the parking garage, which I'm thinking theoretically at least the acoustics would be fairly decent, you know, compared to being just outside. Um, but it would still allow the airflow. And it's a population, you know, the, most of them are undergrads of, of the traditional age. Uh, so they're not in what is considered the most at-risk, vulnerable population. My choir's at Westminster. I will not be pushing the envelope on that. Um, they're, they're very um, vulnerable and I, I am responsible for them. The bell choir at Westminster, I will be getting together with them outside and we'll be far apart from each other wearing masks, but we're not singing. I am 
really intrigued to see how performing arts change and and just how teaching really anything changes when as we are shifting to the outdoors i think that there's a really sort of accidentally beautiful thing about that about reconsidering where education happens it's really fascinating well we are coming up um on time here is there anything additionally you wanted to cover that we're missing one one little piece of, of my kind of recent-ish past is the time I spent at Central State University in Ohio. Central State University is an HBCU, and um, yeah, it, it's uh, I am forever changed. I am forever and 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 so grateful for that time, and I so I uh, miss being there. I miss being part of that community. I left because my mother was uh, diagnosed with um, cancer, and she was. I wanted to make use of the time she had left, and it turned out that she was gone less than a year after I came back. But um, Central State University, the vocalism of my students, the vocalism of the choirs, uh, the opera workshop uh, stuff that we did was so powerful and uh, truth-telling, you know, um, in a very special and different way than anything I've encountered out here yet. And those are voices we don't get to necessarily hear enough of, I think, in the classical music world. It's hopefully changing. There's baby steps, you know, kind of pushing it in the right direction. But I think those are voices that just would benefit the world to better to be heard. Oh, God. Yeah. I was really... um moved this summer at the California Choral Directors Association Summer Choral Summit. There were, were several speakers that spoke to this, um, the issue of diversity and the issue of how Western European music and the definition of, the definition of real music and real art uh, being Western European, obliterate that, liquefy the foundation of that, start over (laughs) rich 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 musics and peoples and histories from around the world that have voices to to move us and inform us and transform us that's the future all right well thank you so much for talking with us today and enjoyed it very much Um, good luck with your podcast series thank you very much Uh, before we let you go is there anything that you wanted to uh, plug Uh, allvoicescurlproject.org and allvoicescurlproject at gmail.com good ways to to contact me we really um, are here for people to join and be be with us in these uh, projects that we're doing um Right now, we're small in number, and I would really love to see that grow. Great. It sounds like a wonderful project. So, Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you. So good to meet you, Mason. Good to meet you, too. And it's wonderful to see you, Sean. Always good to see you.
It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually... Did I stutter?